นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะปุถังธรรมังสังขังนมาสามิ So the theme for this week, for the Sunday afternoon talk, is what became of Mara. So probably for some of you, the the figure of Mara is uh, the, these mats at the front are quite accessible; they can be used. <laughs> the uh, the figure of Mara is probably quite well known to uh, some of you uh, who are acquainted with the Buddhist scriptures, Buddhist mythology. Some of you possibly not, but uh, Mara is the uh, the embodiment of everything that is unskillful and unwholesome in the Buddhist mythology, and uh, in the, the the stories of the the Buddha's life and the uh, in the Buddhist mythology, Mara regularly appears and has uh, dialogues with the with the the Buddha or Buddha's disciples. And uh, is often trying to to trick or, or persuade or or threaten, a challenge, um, delude uh, the Buddha and the, the Buddha's disciples. So the the question, you, what became of Mara? Uh, again, as I often point out, I don't think up the titles for these talks, but they're suggested by lots of uh, sangha members. So I saw this one on this on the list, and I thought oh, this should be quite interesting to explore. So. Uh, Uh, people might wonder. Well, you know, Mara was this sort of te- the, the the figure of the tempter, rather like you have in the, the Bible, the figure of uh, Lucifer or Satan, the, the one who is sort of tempting uh, Jesus in the desert or, or tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. And so, a very very similar mythological role that uh, Mara has in in Buddhist scriptures. And so, you know, the question: What became of Mara after the the the, the parinibbana after the The end of the Buddha's life in the world. You know, what what happened to Mara? So that'll be that kind of area I'll explore uh, during, uh, during during today, and we'll have lots of time for uh, questions and discussion uh, in the second part of the afternoon. So Mara appears very regularly, uh, quite often in, in the scriptures, and um, from the early time of the Buddha's enlightenment, just before the Buddha's enlightenment. And uh, also during the, the Buddha's lifetime, and also right at the end of the Buddha's life, just before the Parinibbana, and uh, and so one of the most uh, famous or well-known stories of Mara is um, where you have the the, the uh, soon-to-be-enlightened Buddha sitting underneath the Bodhi tree, and has made the resolution. The Bodhisattva has made the resolution to uh, realize full and complete enlightenment. And then Mara shows up with uh, his armies, a huge army of, of various different types of, of beings, to to challenge the the, uh, the almost soon to be awakened Buddha to try and put him off uh, his uh, uh, his efforts and to to interrupt. And so, in that the more uh, in that kind of version, in that, in that what is a familiar story, you have. Uh, uh, the the army of Mara is represented by demons. First of all, trying to threaten and in- intimidate the Buddha, 
and then you have the daughters of Mara coming along to, to try and tempt him with, with desire of various kinds. And then the third wave is that of responsibility. In some of the stories you get the, uh, the image of the Buddha's father, King Suddhodana, appearing and begging him to come back to, to the kingdom of Kapilavatu, saying, you know, the, the kingdom is falling apart, you know, your, your half-brother Nanda, you know, he's, he's, he's a nice lad, but he's not like you, you know, he's not as, as good a leader as you. And, uh, and uh, these uh, uh, are the, the familiar stories whereby you have the, the, the sort of army of de demons uh, that are physically threatening and then the, the forces of attraction and the forces of, of responsibility. Uh, what I thought I, I would share with you this afternoon is even though you have that represented in uh, quite uh, sort of a, a physical form in the, in the terms of that imagery, you don't find that actual story in the Pali canon. And uh, Mara is more represented in psychological terms uh, in, the, in the original uh, sort of versions or, or stories uh, as well uh, at the time of the Enlightenment as well as uh, appearing in person. So um, I thought I would share with you this. This is a translation of uh, Venerable Nyanamoli from his wonderful book, The Life of the Buddha. The language is a little bit antiquated. He translated this in the 1950s, so it's a bit sort of old-fashioned English, so don't be too surprised if you don't understand all the words. Even if uh, English is your first language, probably uh, some of it will, will slip by thinking, huh, what does that mean? So this is a, a verse from the uh, Sutta Nipata, from uh, Buddha describing his, uh, his efforts towards enlightenment um, uh, just before enlightenment had been achieved. As I strove to subdue myself beside the broad Niranjara, the river, absorbed unflinchingly to gain the true surcease of bondage here, Namuchi, that's Mara, Namuchi came and spoke to me with words all garbed in pity thus, Oh, you are thin and you are pale, and you are in death's presence too. A thousand parts are pledged to, to, to death, but life still holds one part of you. Live, sir! Life is the better way. You can gain merit if you live. Come, live the holy life, and pour libations on the holy fires, and thus a world of merit gain. What, you, can, you, what can you do by struggling now? The path of struggling too is rough and difficult and hard to bear. Now Mara, as he spoke these lines, drew near until he stood close by. The Blessed One replied to him as he stood thus, O oh, evil one! O oh, cousin of the negligent, you have come here for your own ends. Now, merit, I need not at all. Let Mara talk of merit then to those that stand in need of it. For I have faith and energy, and I have understanding too. So while I thus subdue myself, why do you speak to me of life? There is this wind that blows, can dry even the rivers running streams. So, while I thus subdue myself, why should it not dry up my blood? And as the blood dries up, then bile and phlegm run dry. The wasting flesh becomes the mind. I shall have more of mindfulness, of understanding. I shall have greater concentration. For living thus, I come to know the limits to which feeling goes. My mind looks not to sense desires. You see a being's purity. Your first squadron, so this is where the Buddha is describing the armies of Mara that later appear as kind of actual armies, and he's talking about the uh, psychological um, aspects of, of Mara's uh, 
Mara's armies or the threat. Your first squadron is sense desires. Your second is called boredom. Then hunger and thirst compose the third. And craving is the fourth in rank. The fifth is sloth and acidy, while cowardice lines up as sixth. Uncertainty is seventh. The eighth is malice, paired with obstinacy. Gain, honor, and renown, besides an ill-won notoriety, self-praise and denigrating others. These are your squadrons, Namuchi. These are the black ones' fighting squadrons. None but the brave will conquer them to gain bliss by the victory. I fly the ribbon that denies retreat. Shame on life here, I say. Better to die in battle now than to choose to live on in defeat. There are ascetics and divines that have surrendered here, and they are seen no more. They do not know the paths the pilgrim travels by. So, seeing Mara's squadrons now, arrayed all round with elephants, I sally forth to fight that I may not be driven from my post. Your serried squadrons, which the world, with all its gods, cannot defeat, I shall now break with understanding, as with a stone, a raw clay pot. So, dramatic language, some of which I hope you can understand. <laughs> But it's, uh, it's interesting in that how it sort of moves between both the psychological side, saying, you know, obstinacy and cowardice and, and uh, you know, laziness um, and, uh, and such like kind of uh, psychological obstacles or things that were challenging. Uh, and then also talking about these as, as an army, as a battle. And so it's, it slips between the mythological forms and the psychological and moves back and forth between that. So talking about Mara and what's become of Mara, <laughs> or what did become of Mara, then it's, it's helpful to understand that Mara appears both in this sort of myth, mythological form as an actual entity, a, 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 a malign deity, uh, a, 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 a kind of divine being that wishes harm and, and uh, destruction, and also just the aspects of our own mind, uh, that uh, the, uh, the figure of Mara uh, is meaningful and is good to understand in both those respects, the, the force of delusion in our own mind and, uh, and a, uh, a malicious or a, an ill-wishing entity uh, outside. And it moves back in the scriptures and also, I would say, within uh, within the, the stories and uh, it's good to understand both uh, uh, both of those elements have their their value and their meaning their their usefulness to us in understanding uh, our life and how, learning how to work with uh, those qualities so uh, uh, along with uh, that uh, encounter with mara just before the buddha's enlightenment when he was still a bodhisattva um, then there's other occasions when uh, when Mara uh, came along to try and and trick or delude the Buddha. After the Buddha's enlightenment, there was one time when the, the Buddha was sitting in the in the Himalayas, uh, meditating, and the thought uh, arose in his mind: I wonder if you could govern a country in a in a wholesome way. I wonder if you could actually be a political leader in accordance with Dhamma. And then Mara appears and says, "Oh yes, of course you could. You know, someone with your gifts, your talents. You know, it's absolutely possible to uh, to govern uh, govern righteously." Um, and uh, the Buddha says, "I know you, Mara." <laughs> It's uh, yeah, the uh, if you're in a, a role of political leadership, it's impossible to govern in a completely uh, wholesome way, uh, which is interesting in terms of a commentary on the political arena. 
He said, because as a, a political leader, you, you're, you have to be running armies, you have to imprison people, you have to, to, to punish people that have uh, caused harm. So there's, there's always compromises and, and things that you're going to have to do as a political leader so that uh, if, you're, if you've chosen that role, it's very, very difficult to, to live in that, in that role, to take that role in society in a completely wholesome way. It's interesting food for thought. And then also, similarly, when he was up in the Himalayas, uh, then uh, uh, he, uh, the, the thought arises in his mind, you know, I, I have this, the power, the psychic power, I could turn the whole Himalayan mountain range into solid gold if I wanted to. I could do that. And Mara says, yes, indeed you could. Yeah, that was a great idea. Yes, uh, yes you, you do have the power to turn the whole of the Himalayan mountain range into solid gold. And then once again, the Buddha says, yeah, I know you, Mara. I could do that, but even twice that amount would not be enough for one person's greed. So, yeah. just as in the Bible, the, the uh, you have Jesus saying, you know, "Get, get thee behind me, Satan." Retro me, Satanang. The Buddha says, "I know you, Mara." So it's interesting that when the Buddha meets Mara, and it's both this entity coming along and speaking to him and saying, "You know, you could do this," but it's also a way of recognizing that these thoughts can arise even in the mind of a fully enlightened being, that uh, those thoughts of, of uh, you know, perhaps I could do this, or, or you know, I could, do, I could turn this whole mountain range into solid gold. So it's both, uh, a, 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 in my understanding, in my reading of it, it's both a way in which, yes, there, you can think of it as an entity coming along and trying to tempt or test, but you can also think of it as a thought arising in the mind of, of doubt or of desire or of, of, uh, say, a, a, um, uh, a possibility of personal advancement and such like. But immediately, the Buddha never fights against Mara, but meets Mara with understanding. Like, I know you, Mara. <laughs> I know what this is. I know where this is coming from. Another occasion during the hot season, uh, during the middle of the day, then the Buddha lay down to take a rest, and Mara came along and said, look at you, you're supposed to be a fully enlightened being. What are you doing lying down to sleep in the middle of the day? You know, you know, lazy, you call yourself a monk, you're kind of negligent and, and uh, worthless, you know. And the, the Buddhist said, it, you know, it's the hot season and uh, it's qu- quite appropriate to, uh, during the, this time when the weather is like this to, to, uh, to mindfully lie down. Uh, I set in, uh, in my mind the time for, for waking up. I, I put my head down, I go to sleep mindfully, I wake up mindfully. This is blameless. So again, you get Mara coming along to, to sort of test the Buddha or say, you know, you, you, you're a slob, you're not really doing this right, you're how lazy, you know, how incompetent, you're supposed to be a great enlightened master. And that representing uh, the possibility of, of a doubt or a question arising in the mind. And then that certainty, that uh, clear awareness, say, no, it's, it's the hot season, the weather is oppressive and the body is inclined to, to, Take a rest. This is out of kindness to the body and working with the conditions as we experience them. It's quite appropriate. Lie down mindfully, let the, let the system go to sleep and wake up refreshed and uh, carry on. It's completely blameless. Uh, also, an- another instance where, uh, not with the Buddha, but with Mahamogalana, if you want, and uh, the story of this is in the uh, Sutta number 50. 
in the middle-length discourses. It's called the Rebuke Tamara. And it starts off with uh, Mahamogalana, the Buddha's second disciple. His two chief disciples were uh, Sariputta and Moggallana. And so Venerable Ma, uh, Mahamogalana feels this weird sensation in his stomach. He thought, oh, you know, some weird, something weird going on in my guts. What's, what's happening here? And so uh, he, uh, he had great psychic power. So you know, rather than having some kind of stomach upset, or then uh, when, he ex- when he investigates what's going on in his body using his psychic power, he realizes, oh, uh, it's not something I've eaten, it's Mara in my stomach. You know, <laughs> Mara has invaded my system and he's trying to, trying to cause discomfort and trouble for me. And then, uh, so then Moggallana sends this psychic, uh, psychic message to Mara saying, Mara, I know that's you. you know, stop causing me trouble. Get out and go away. And then Mara thinks, he can't know I'm here. I've got such powers. I'm, I'm completely screened. He can't know it's me. You know, it's impossible. He can't know that it, yeah, there's no way he could know it's me. And then Moggallana then says something like, you're thinking I can't know it's you, but I do. <laughs> I recognize you. I know you, Mara. And he goes into this very interesting story where he says, do you know how I know it's you? You know, how I, I recognize you? So, uh, in the um, many, uh, many, many years ago, eons ago, in the time of the, the, the Buddha Kakusanda, uh, there was a Mara called Dusi. And uh, Dusi, uh, the Mara called Dusi, was trying to cause trouble in the Sangha. And so when they were there, the, the Buddha Kakusanda and the Sangha were walking on arms round, the Mara entered into the mind of a local, sh- uh, a local boy and caused the boy to pick up a stone and throw it and, and it hit the head of the Buddha's chief disciple, wounding him. And then the, the, the Buddha and Kakusanda stopped and turned round and said, Dusi Mara, you know no moderation. And there he was uh, recognized, and then apparently, according to the story, the ground, you know, Mara had to, to leave the little shepherd boy and, uh, and was swallowed up into the ground, and, and his life came to an end. And he was swallowed up into the hell realms for a long, 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 long time. And so then Moggallana uh, said to Mara, you know how I know that story? And uh, he said, because I was that Mara Dusi, that was me. <laughs> Uh, and you know uh, how that's connected with you? That Mara Dusi had a sister called Kali. Kali had a son, which is you. So I was your uncle. So I know you, Mara. Don't think I don't know you. <laughs> so a little kind of family dynamic going on there. But it's all, it's, so it's a very interesting story in many, many ways. Firstly, that... Um, uh, the you know, Mara coming along and causing a physical problem that is considered possible, but also that the Buddha's second disciple, an Arahant, a totally enlightened being, uh, a few lifetimes ago, was the embodiment of evil in the universe. So that's a very, very different picture than you have in sort of Judeo-Christian uh, mythology, uh, whereby uh, Lucifer, or Satan, is the, is is the is the the kind of embodiment of evil for forever and ever. And uh, as you uh, as you hit, uh, as you find, if you read uh, Paradise Lost, John Milton's Paradise Lost, it's actually uh, Satan uh, in that uh, in that story comes across as quite a tragic figure because he's been cast down into the into the hell realms to be the lord of the the hell realms for, forever. And and then there's this very poignant, this kind of sad uh, dialogue where they're talking with with, with Lucifer. 
he says, uh, salvation is impossible for me. There's nothing that can be done to, to rescue me. So uh, all good in, he says these words, at least according to John Milton, all good is lost to me, therefore let evil be my good. So I can't do anything good, so I'll just be evil as well as I can. <laughs> so, uh, so the Buddhist mythology that you have is very, very different. So that in where you can have Mara, uh, say, a being can be in the role of Mara for a lifetime, but then uh, through various um, circumstances and effort and, and diligence, they can pull themselves out of that kind of dark and, and dangerous, destructive place, and a few lifetimes later, end up as a great, uh, a great Arahant and, a, and one of the chief disciples of the Buddha. So that's a very different uh, mythological picture that we are all, we are all savable. So when, uh, when, uh, People uh, took, come to me and thought and, and say, "Oh, Ajahn, you know, I've, I've made so many mistakes. I've, my life is such a disaster. I've done so many wrong things. You know, I, I'm I'm unredeemable. I can never I can never kind of get out of this this pit I've dug for myself. I've got such problems." This is often a story I tell them. I say, "Well, you know, uh, the being who was the embodiment of, of evil and unskillfulness in the universe, a few lifetimes later, he became a great arahant." And, uh, uh, and uh, uh, one of uh, the Buddha's most noble and wonderful disciples. So, uh, you know, so what does that say about all beings being redeemable? All beings have an opportunity. All beings being, uh, uh, say, never a lo never a lost cause. So I would say that's in terms of reflecting on this mythology of Mara and these, some of these stories. That's a very helpful message that comes across. So also in Buddhist mythology, in terms of what became of Mara, yeah, Mara is not just a single entity like you have in, in the, in the sort of Judeo-Christian mythology of uh, like one Lucifer or one, uh, one Satan figure who's there forever. It's more like a, 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 a role or a position. Like there are many, many Buddhas, like Vipassi Buddha, Sikhi Buddha, uh, v, uh, Vesabhu Buddha, uh, Konagamana Kasapa, uh, Kakusanda, and Gautama Buddha. So different beings uh, are born as Buddhas in the world, so different beings are born as Mara in the world. And there's, so it's like more like a, a, I hesitate to say office, <laughs> a role that is uh, occupied by various different beings at, at different times. So um, at least in, in terms of, a, of an, a Mara as an entity, so sort of mythological form, um, so that that... Uh, that is one aspect. It's not just one being or what became of Mara, but rather <laughs> what, uh, what is the, the Maric activity? Uh, uh, how is that continuing on after the, the Buddha's lifetime? Uh, but also, more importantly, the word Mara means death. Uh, Amaravati uh, means the deathless realm. Uh, my name, uh, Amar uh, Amaro, means deathless. So Mara is death, Amara is deathless. So this is a familiar theme to me because it's my name <laughs> in my, my monastery. So Amravati is the deathless realm. So there are all kinds of death, along with physical death, um, then uh, the various kinds of, of psychological death. So one of the uh, other interesting aspects of what became, uh, looking at the question of what became of Mara, uh, is how that uh, that aspect of death and things ending, how that manifests in our life and that uh, how we can work with that. Uh, so another aspect of the Buddhist mythology is rather than being one Mara, they also talk about five Maras. 
And each of those five maras is associated with one of the five khandhas. So the, the five khandhas are rupa, physical form, material form, and the physical body. So that's uh, the mara of physical form. That's called machu mara. Uh, machu means, uh, means, uh, the, uh, means the killer or, or, or the, the deadly one. So it's about, that's about physical death. So that's the first kind of mara, machu mara, is associated with rupakanda, the physical body. The second one is kilesa mara. Kilesa means defilements. That's associated with, uh, with feeling, uh, with vedana, feeling and, then cra- and craving. Kilesa mara is the, the second type. And then the third one is kandamara, uh, and that's associated with identification with the body and the personality. Uh, and so that's the, um, uh, that, the sense of I am this body, I am this personality, this is who and what I am. The, I, just that, that uh, um, what we call self-view, the mara of this is what I am. I'm a person, I'm a woman, I'm a man, this is how old I am, this is my name, this is my, my story. Taking all of that to be true and real and solid. So what we would call self-view in the Buddhist, uh, Buddhist psychology. So that's associated with perception, sanya. The, uh, the fourth one, which is associated with the uh, sankhara khanda, the, the mental formations, is called abhisankhara mara. And that's to do with thinking and views and opinions. The mara of believing your opinions to be absolutely true and right. <laughs> So that uh, each of these maras are, are uh, the way the mind gets deluded or attached or identified with these different areas. And then the fifth one, uh, which is uh, very interesting, is kind of like Lucifer, who was the brightest of archangels, who then got uh, a bit overambitious and got thrown down from the heavens in, in Judeo-Christian mythology to, to be uh, the, the, the devil figure. Uh, is called Deva Putamara, and that's associated with consciousness or Vijnana Kanda. So Deva Putamara, uh, Deva is the angels or the, the Devas, uh, um, Puta means the sun. So Deva Putamara, again in Buddhist cosmology, Deva Putamara is the ruler of the highest of the sensory heavens. So again, this is a bit of a lecture on Buddhist cosmology. <laughs> so there's seven sensory heavens. So this is the um, the Manusaloka, the human realm that we're a part of. So the next, the first heavenly realm above this is called the Bhuma Devas, the earth spirits. Then you have the Tavatinsa Devas, oh, sorry, the Chatu Maharajika Devas, the, the Devas of the, the heaven of the four protective deities, the four great kings. Then you have the, the heaven of the, the of the 33, Tavatinsa heaven, the 33 gods where, where Saka or Indra is the, the ruler. Then above that heaven you have the Yama Devas, uh, then above that the Tusita Devas, then the, uh, which means the heaven of the contented. Then the next one, the, the sixth one is the Nimana Rati Devas, the Devas who delight in creation. And then the Paranimita Vasavati Devas is the seventh one, which is the Devas who delight in the creations of others, the Paranimita Vasavati Devas. So, and, uh, not to blind you with too many <laughs> cosmological uh, terms. But so that's the se- literally the seventh heaven. And Deva Putamara is the ruler of that seventh heaven. So he's the brightest of devas, the, kind of the, 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 uh, the, the king of the devas of that seventh heaven. 
So the brightest of the uh, and the ruler of the the sensory realms. Above that is all the Brahma realms, the the, the high deities. Uh, it's called the the Brahma Loka. But uh, this Deva Putamara is the the ruler or the head, the the kind of guardian of the sensory heavens. So very bright, very impressive, very uh, radiant and um, powerful, but. Uh, is is also um, malignant. So this is to do with the mind's attachment to brightness and goodness, and uh, t- attachment to to virtue, to um, to say powers of meditation, to understanding. How even when the the mind can be so very very bright, very clear, uh, very awake, it can still be deluded. Uh, uh, a, a particularly interesting and helpful set of, of teachings that relate to this is uh, from the Northern Buddhist tradition is in, in the what's called the Shurangama Sutra. It's, uh, it's mainly found in the Chinese tradition. The last chapter of the Shurangama Sutra is called the Fifty Skanda Demon States, and it outlines ten different problems that arise with each of these five. Each of the uh, of the five khandas, so it's kind of like the the influence of these different maras, uh, the uh, Machumara, Kilesamara, Kandamara, Abhisankara Mara, and Devaputa Mara, how they operate in relationship to the body and feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. So, if you're interested, if you uh, find in the library or through other resources, if you look up the fifty skanda demon states. You find that you know, the the uh, quite a, a thorough descriptions of what happens uh, uh, when the mind gets deluded by these uh, in these various different areas. So, for example, talking about the you know, the, the the last ten of that, the um, it's, a, it's the kind of delusions that uh, a very advanced spiritual being might come under. So that someone who is uh, some being who has already reached the say the level of a of a, uh, a once returner or, e- or even a non-returner, uh, the uh, a sakadagami or an anagami, a very very high level of of, uh, of insight, very very high level of, of understanding, they can still be conceited. They can still have that sense of, I understand, I I know, I am uh, I am the one who is uh, say, the the spiritual uh, leader here. I, I am a great example. You know, and they could. And it describes in those um, 50 skanda demon states, it can be that someone who's reached that level of a, of a non-returner, they can be really pleased with the number of people that show up for their Dhamma talks. <laughs> they can be really, uh, say, dependent or, or relishing uh, gestures of, uh, of respect and devotion. They say, yes, I really deserve this. Yes, please, yeah, I, I allow you to adore me. Uh, yes, I am fully worthy of respect, and you're making a lot of merit by respecting me and believing in those kind of conceited uh, thoughts. I'm kind of inflating it a little bit, <laughs> but uh, it's. Uh, I feel it's very it's very helpful to understand how these maras are operating, uh, even when there's a lot of spiritual refinement or, or many many wholesome qualities that uh, the uh, the the kind of the influence of of um, uh, of these delusionary forces can still operate, and so Mara, as I said, me, it means death, and so it's where uh, with each of these areas, like attachment to the to the physical body and fear of physical death, um, 
or it, it can be an attachment to to sense uh, sense pleasure, sense desire, identification with the body and and, uh, and personality. So that when you uh, you might not have very many you know, strong defilements uh, that are very obvious, but when when you get praised, then uh, uh, or when you do something that succeeds. You take that as an absolute good. It's like, yes, <laughs> I got promoted. Or yes, I passed the exam. Yes, I, I won the prize. Yes, yeah. Or, and when you fail, you get criticized. Oh no, I got, I got unfriended. I got, you know, I've, I've, I failed. I got fired. My my project got rejected. Ah, that uh, that's an ego death. That's a, uh, and so this is Mara as manifesting in our attachments to ordinary everyday practicalities. Uh, in terms of uh, one particular passage, I found very helpful in terms of Kilesa Mara, the um, the um, uh, that's the Mara associated with defilements, is uh, with so that's uh, the second one of the five. Uh, this is a passage from the. Um, uh, Sangyutanikaya, the connected discourses um, uh, about the six senses, where the Buddha says, There are forms, monks, cognizable to the eye, agreeable, pleasing, charming, endearing, fostering desire, enticing. If a monk relishes them, welcomes them, and remains fastened to them, he is said to be a monk fettered by forms cognizable to the eye. He has gone over to Mara's camp. He has come under Mara's power. The evil one can do with him as he will. And so too with hearing, see, uh, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. So that always struck me as a very powerful uh, verse, uh, uh, passage. And also, again, how the, um, the, within the Buddhist expression of things, you've got both sort of psychological qualities and the mythological qualities sort of interchangeable that uh, you've gone over to Mara's camp come under Mara's power the evil one can do with him as he will uh, also the the Buddha if people often don't recognize that the Buddha was a soldier before he was a monk he was a warrior noble a kshatriya and so he uses a lot of military language so he's sort of he's like, you've gone over from this this army to that army you, you've left the kind of the Dhamma army you've gone over to Mara's army you've You've uh, gone over to Mara's camp, like you've you've crossed the 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 uh, the, the no man's land, and you've uh, entered the other. You've been you've been uh, kind of, uh, you, you've uh, betrayed your, or you've lost your own, your connection with your own group, and you've gone over to Mara's camp. Uh, so that that um, that mixture of 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 uh, of mythology and psychological qualities i feel it's really helpful to understand that and and for many of us um particularly living in the west and you know and now with uh, with covid being very uh, very much a part of society and also say you know the war in ukraine then physical death is a little a, bit, a little bit closer to us maybe but it's interesting that for for many people uh, many west many people living in the west that uh, physical death is something that sort of seems very vague or remote and and uh, doesn't really worry people too much or we don't really think too much about about oh you know it'll happen one day my my life will come to an end yeah so you know just no big thing um, but uh, ego death is something that's that we really want to avoid being criticised 
failing uh, something that we do, failing uh, saying something and being regarded as an idiot or as a fool or or uh, being rejected by our friends, even saying those words, you, uh, you know, and I'm saying them, you can feel like, ooh, the kind of something is sort of recoiling from that. And uh, a, a statistic or a, a, a psychological study I like to quote that's very significant in this regard is um, uh, that the uh, Harvard University Psychology Department did a study, it's more than 20 years ago now, I think, uh, they did a, a very widespread study of what people were afraid of. They, did a, they created a, a questionnaire, and it was six or 7,000 people that they, they asked about, you know, what are you afraid of? And they came up with a top 10 list of things that, that people were afraid of. And so, so number 10 on the list was so being physically attacked and, and robbed. And, uh, and, uh, number, number eight on the list was, uh, having your, your, your home, uh, invaded by, by, uh, by robbers and being beaten up and, or, and, uh, having your, being physically injured and having your things stolen. So, so number six on the list was, um, having a, a loved one close to you dying of, of a, of a horrible disease. So number, you know, number, uh, Three are on the number four on the list was being killed yourself and an experience of, of being murdered. Uh, number three on the list was your, your country being uh, invaded and uh, you know dist- uh, the, your your people your uh, your social group being being uh, wiped out or, or uh, drastically harmed in in a war. Number two on the list was nuclear warfare and destruction of life on Earth. And you know what number one was? Fear of public speaking. So, and that's kind of amazing. I've often quoted that. So, fear of public speaking was more terrifying, that was more intense and more un- unwished for uh, as an experience than nuclear war and the destruction of life on Earth. That's an amazing, amazing statistic. <laughs> that me dying on stage is worse than destruction of life on Earth. So that, uh, I think it was a particular group of people, I guess, that they were interviewing. <laughs> so it's not, it wouldn't be the same all over the planet, but in that uh, six or 7,000 people that were interviewed for that survey, uh, that's, that's a, a powerful message. Ego death is more terrifying than physical death and of, of the living system all around us. So. So when we talk about Mara and the presence of Mara, <laughs> then, then uh, it's these ego deaths uh, and being rejected, failing uh, uh, at things, losing, uh, being fired from a job, failing an exam, uh, a friendship breaking up, a marriage breaking up. Uh, the, these are, are things that, that are, are, in a way, much more tangible and painful and, and unwanted than than the sort of threat to through our, our life, which can seem far more remote and, and vague. So, with all these aspects of, and contemplating sort of Mara, what became of Mara? And I would say that these many, many and various Maras are still very much uh, alive and, and active within our minds, within the world. Uh, I've never met a demonic or kind of a physical Mara that I'm, uh, I'm aware of, <laughs> so, but I've met plenty of psychological Maras. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very regularly, <laughs> so uh, I've never encountered a, the uh, sort of a, the or had a dialogue with with a being like uh, uh, you know, the Buddha did and the various other um, 
uh, of the Buddha's disciples, but certainly those influences of attachment to the body, attachment to the personality, attachment to uh, my my uh, opinions or my uh, uh, wanting to to always be right, um, and uh, or attaching to to bright states of mind, you know, the the kind of Deva Bhutamara of. Uh, uh, the the attachment to fr- uh, profound states of consciousness, and I, I'm very happy to admit that I've had these experiences whereby, at the end of a long, long retreat, um, thinking, "Well, that's that's all sorted. It's, yeah, I can't see how I could ever have any problems ever again. This is this is great. So downhill from here on. This is good. Right. Very nice. Very good." Like, little did I realize. <laughs> it was extremely, it was indeed downhill from there on, but not in the way, <laughs> not in terms of an easy run, but in terms of, of my uh, attitudes and conduct and, uh, and so on and so forth. That uh, attaching to a bright state of mind and thinking it meant some kind of, uh, of uh, total purity and liberation was a big, big mistake. <laughs> So that, uh, in, in terms of the, the, the fifth one, the Deva Putamara, it's like, yeah, that's definitely an experience we can have. And, and, and when people ha- are on a meditation retreat or have the mind going very, very quiet, very still, very bright, then uh, the, as it says, again, going back to the 50 Skanda demon states, there's a, re- a repetitive phrase that the Buddha uses with each of those sort of 50 states then he says, if the person, if they know it's a state, then it's a good state. If they don't realize it's a state, then they are bound to fall. Over and over. If you, re- if you think, oh, here's a state of mind. This is something that's arisen. This is just an event. This isn't what I am. This is just a particular, if you, if it's, if you know it's a state, then it's usable. It's workable. If you think it's really what, who and what you are, then it's going to be painful. <laughs> You're bound to, to fall. So then, what do we do? What uh, what you find is that Mara, that uh, that death, is always associated with some kind of eye making and mind making, some kind of ego structures, either very obvious, like I am this person, I am a woman, I am a man, I am I am non-binary, I am this uh, entity. This is my name. This is my age. This is my nationality. This is my profession. This is my successes. These are my failures. Uh, that. The I am's are the cause of, well, that's what is the, the, in a way, the, the fuel of Mara. That's the, wherever there's an I am, there's going to be death. It's, uh, inevitable, to quote Thanos in the, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Thanos, the kind of archdemon, uh, very sort of suitably demonic. And Thanos literally means death in Greek. So, or Thanatos. Uh, uh, Thanos, the name in the Marvel Universe, can, comes from the Greek Thanatos death uh, so uh, death and, and and his punchline thanos's punchline is i am inevitable <laughs> because he's snapping his fingers and destroying half the life in the universe according to the story i believe so if there's an i am if there's that conceit of, of uh, ego-centered attitude then some kind of uh, mara event is going to ha- mara based event is going to happen there's going to be some kind of psychological death there. but if the mind focuses on that eye-making and mind-making, the ahankara, mamankara, and we use particularly insight meditation, vipassana meditation, to counteract those habits of, of attachment 
and creating a sense of self, then then that's how Mara is evaded. Death is is evaded. There's a a, a description of advice that the, the Buddha gave to a, a young monk who was his attendant called Megia. Megia was a very keen young monk, and he had the he was the Buddha's attendant for a while. When uh, I think before Ananda became the Buddha's permanent uh, attendant, so uh, the Buddha had this young monk Megia as his helper, his attendant uh, for a while. And uh, they were they were uh, went off to this this remote forest and were in retreat for some time. And Megia said, "Venerable sir, um, I'm I'm really intent on enlightenment. I want to do everything I can to re- to realize full and complete enlightenment. So I'd really like to go off by myself during the day and just there's a really nice mango grove by the river, and I want to sit there and I'm determined to end all greed, hatred, and delusion." And uh, the Buddha said, "Wait, Megia, this isn't the, the right time. It's, it's best if you just stay stay close, uh, stay close by. And I don't think you're ready for that kind of." Solitude and that in, in intensity, and he said, "No, no, no! I really am. I really am. I really want to do this. I really want to do this." And as they usually do in these stories, they go back and forth three times. And after Megi has asked to go off by himself for the third time, then the Buddha says, "Well, the target has been pressed three times. So he has to agree." So off you go. So then Megi went off by himself to this mango grove by the river, and and then lo and behold. <laughs> So, uh, he had a really difficult time. His mind is all over the place, just completely uh, caught up with all sorts of greed, hatred, and delusion, and, and un, unskillful thoughts and feelings, emotions. And so, goes back to the the Buddha at the end of the day and said, uh, "You were right. <laughs> that uh, yeah, I I had I thought I was ready for for making the breakthrough and realizing enlightenment, but I was really not not ready. So uh, I should have followed your advice." And then the Buddha gives uh, Megya a, a succession of, of um, pieces of advice, guidance in meditation. I won't go into, into all the detail here, but uh, at the end of it, the, the last piece of advice that he gives to Megya, after encouraging him in loving-kindness and uh, contemplating the unattractiveness of the body and concentration on, on the breath for for um, developing calmness. He says to uh, develop the perception of impermanence because when one develops the perception of impermanence, the anicca sanya, then one sees through the conceit of identity. One lets go of uh, what's called asmi mana, the conceit of identity. And when, when the heart is free of the I am, free of that conceit of identity, that is nibbana here and now. So that uh, is a, a very uh, beautiful, clear, simple expression of the development of insight. If we learn to see you know, everything is uncertain, everything is impermanent, everything is necessarily in a state of change, the world around us, the people around us, uh, this body, this mind, these feelings, these thoughts, if they're recognized as, as being impermanent, uncertain, uh, unstable, then uh, how can they be a, a permanent and stable me, a permanent and stable I? So the Buddha highlights how if that perception of impermanence is genuinely developed, that feeds the insight into not-self, into anatta, and then that the, the, the ripening or the fulfillment of that insight into not-self the heart is free of that conceit of, of I am. It doesn't mean you kind of just disappear into a puff of smoke or a rainbow or 
which just kind of evaporate. But <laughs> the body is still here. You know, the feelings and seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching is still here. But the mind is not creating that f- false sense of identity. And he says that when the heart is free of the conceit, I am, that is Nibbana here and now. The great peace, the great quality of, of freedom and ease comes with letting go of self-view uh, and, and conceit in, in this way. In another dialogue that he has with a, a young Brahmin student called Mogaraja, a whole uh, kind of a group of, of uh, Brahmin students came to the Buddha one day, and this is in the Suttanipata, and this is listed. Mogaraja asked the Buddha, "How can one evade the king of death? How can you how can you escape from Mara's rule? <laughs> how can uh, how can the king of death, uh, the uh, entire they say Pratmachurat?" The machu is the, the killer, or the uh, the Mara, the Mara, the, the deadly one. How how can the king of death be uh, avoided? How can we escape from the influence of the the king of death? And then the Buddha said, if you see everything as empty, if you see the emptiness of all things, sunyata, then the king of death will not find you. So what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch, if we recognize the intrinsic empty quality of that, this is, it's seeing, but it's, it's, uh, that's a mental impression. Feeling, we can say, sense of touch. Uh, say, well, that, this microphone stand is really here. You know, my hand is really here. You can feel the contact between the two because of the nerves in my fingertips. Like, but that seeing, the, the shape of this, uh, the 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 feeling in my, my fingertips. These are all mental events, right? That the, I only know about this because I can see. <laughs> There's a visual object, as a tactile object. That feeling consciousness, seeing consciousness, the sound of my voice, hearing consciousness. These are mental events. The the mind puts together uh, its impression of the world moment by moment. So what we are all experiencing all of the time, even though we say, well, I'm a, I'm a real person, I've got a body, I'm in this building which really exists. This building was built to last for a thousand years. It's really here. <laughs> so, yes, but in this moment, all we know about this body, this building, this, this world, is a, a pattern of experience arising and passing in the mind. That's what we know. Uh, so that none of us really know the world. What we know is our mind's representation of the world and interestingly enough the the sutta where the buddha describes that is the one immediately after that uh, there are forms cognizable by the eye sutta that's that one's 115 in that that group of disc, of suttas and the one where he describes uh, the the world as being empty and uh, as the, the mind only knows what is the the um, the sort of representation of the world, that's Sutta number 116. So they're both side by side. So when we are able to recognize the empty nature of experience, then uh, that sense of I am loses its solidity, loses its, its, uh, its kind of false substantiality. There's a spaciousness, that there's an ease. And so as the Buddha puts it in that, that explanation to, to Mogaraja, when the, the, if you see the world as empty, then the king of death can't find you. <laughs> the, the, there's no, there's no uh, 
say attachment, no identification. The, the the uh, the mind doesn't tie itself to the things that are beginning and ending. It knows arising and passing away of a feeling and sound and shape and color and sensation and and the the perceptions of our life, our body our, and our mind arising and passing. But it's not identified with those. It knows the world, but it's not attached to the world. It's not identified with the world. So that uh, there's a, a a great peace, a great ease. Another instance where um, Mara comes into the picture is after the, the bhikkhu Vakali had passed away and uh, the, uh, the Buddha had gone, Vakali had been very, very ill and the Buddha had gone to, to see him in his kutia, sort of on his deathbed. And, uh, and after the Buddha had, been, Buddha had been to visit Vakali, then he, he passed away shortly after. And then um, the news was brought to the Buddha, oh, yeah, Bhikkhu Vakali has passed away. And they, they go back to, to his kuti and find his body there in, has passed away in the kuti. And then the Buddha says, uh, and this is one of the very few instances where the Buddha talks in this way. He says, monks, do you, do you see that, 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 hay, that, that, that kind of smoky haze, that somber shadow that's moving around on the hillside? Um, it was a place called Isigili at the black the black rock at Isigili where, where Vakali had his had his hut had his kuti. Did you see that that smoky haze that somber shadow kind of moving around the hillside? So that's Mara looking for Vakali. He can't find him. <laughs> Vakali uh, realized arahantship before he passed away. So Mara's looking for the consciousness of Vakali, but he can't because the mind of Vakali is not established anywhere. So Mara's trying to find Vakali, but can't find can't find Vakali. Like being not found. You know, when you're searching your computer, you know, file not found. So Mara looking. Well, this Vakali, he was one of mine. I had him under my power. Vakali has disappeared. You know, being not found in the Mara database, so that uh, uh, that is a possibility for all of us to uh, to, f- and not just in terms of mytho- you know, avoiding the kind of demonic presence, but also moment by moment, if we are cultivating that uh, that perception of uncertainty, of impermanence, and and developing that the recognition, uh, seeing things in terms of not self. What we see, what we hear, what we feel, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch, our opinions, our emotions, you know, all, all of these uh, things that we take so much to be who and what we are, if there's that cultivation of the, in, the perception of impermanence, the perception of emptiness, uh, sunyata, anicchata, anatata, not self, impermanence, uncertainty, emptiness, then this is how the great freedom of the heart is realizable. As long as there's an I am, then Thanos is, <laughs> Mara is, is there. Uh, when the, the I am is seen as transparent, as empty, as just a, a convenient fiction, then there's like Mara, like the smoky haze, the somber shadow kind of shifting around. Where's, where's she gone? She, you know, she was here a moment ago. That, I had that being in my sights. Where have they gone? I've, I've lost that file. <laughs> They've disappeared. And so then uh, that is uh, subjectively, that's an experience of great ease, great freedom. And uh, that's the potential I would say that we all have, that uh, uh, Mara can be uh, e- evaded. Uh, and uh, the uh, that uh, Machurat uh, uh, doesn't have to find us. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this afternoon. And uh, we can have a... Uh, 
tea break for, for some refreshments and then please come back. It's just about three o'clock now, so come back at um, 20 past and there'll be time for some questions and discussion if people would like. We have a couple of microphones here, so please, um, if people have any questions or things they'd like to follow up from what I was saying, um, if you could use the microphone so everyone can hear your, your question, that would be very helpful. Hello. Good afternoon, Ajahn. Uh, thank you for the talk today. Um, a couple of things came to mind. First one, uh, would there perhaps be an argument that Mara was the Buddha's third teacher and that he would not have found enlightenment without, without Mara and his assaults? That's the first thought. And um, the second, uh, he, he always says, I see you, Mara. And, I was, and you also mentioned how um, even a, the, the mind of uh, an awakened being, thoughts can pass which are uh, like delusion. And it made me wonder about how that relates to the first point in the Eightfold Path of um, right view and the mind's utility or lack thereof in taking someone to the to the enlightenment point those those are my thoughts thank you well uh, to take those one by one uh yeah you you could say that uh mara was i would say rather than being a, a teacher of the of the buddha more uh a, a source of of um Say motivation and uh, uh, contributed to the, the 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 process of the Buddha's enlightenment as, na as a natural part of that, um, being able to acknowledge those forces of delusion and and being ready to to meet them. Uh, and as it said in that that uh, the the poetic expression of the before the Buddha's enlightenment, you know, I will now defeat. These, this tenfold army of Mara with understanding, and so that was uh, that all these different uh, the the different uh, say squadrons of Mara's army of of sloth and cowardice or uh, uh, say um, of pride and uh, uh, so on and so forth that it was uh, ready being ready to recognize those to know what they are and to meet them and to to say receive those and to know that what's going to disempower these or, or conquer those qualities is understanding or, or, or clear clear knowing of what what these qualities are, and so that that in a way sometimes it's, they they talk about the you know, the battle with Mara, but uh, the the Buddha was not fighting. <laughs> that's that's how Mara was defeated. Uh, by the Buddha not contending or not making Mara an, an enemy or a problem, but rather, I know what this is. So that, uh, 
in a way, that's a source of wisdom. And the fact that these stories come down to us, it, you know, it, it is a source of wisdom, a source of insight to us today, that these stories exist. And so the fact that those, that temptation arose, that you, know, you could turn the whole Himalayas into solid gold, or you could, you, could, uh, um, uh, you could consider trying to govern a country by, uh, by a, a completely dharmic leadership method, and uh, that it's that those stories themselves are instructive to us today, as if they were that encounter in the in the Buddha's lifetime. Yes, he knew that, and he and he could recount to his his disciples, his students, this happened, and this is how I replied. And then that it was insightful for him, and it's insightful for the the people that follow along after. So. Uh, uh, I think just insofar as uh, everything can teach us, and, and Ajahn Chah would also emphasize that, you know, our illnesses can teach us, the, the weather can teach us, our, uh, our ne- the neighbor in the next door, uh, Kuti, down the street can, can teach us, you know, everything will teach us if we let it. So in that respect, I'd say, yeah, Mara was a, was a teacher, but it's more, I would say, that, that the, the presence of that delusionary element contributed to the development of the Buddha's wisdom. It was part of that uh, development of wisdom and, and uh, say, skill in working with the world as, in an ongoing way. It, uh, it was a part of that. And then also what you were saying about, about right view, um, if I understood what you were asking there, yeah, that's um, that uh, summer ditti uh, right view or, or view which is in a in, in accord with reality that's you know, recognizing things for what what they are free of conceit free of, of uh, self-view so that the mind that recognizes uh, here is uh, a perception here is a pattern of experience it, it's it doesn't it isn't a person it doesn't belong to a person it's this way in this moment that establishing uh, right view in, in what we have in the in sort of mythologically displayed as the Buddha seeing uh, uh, the uh, meeting Mara and, and 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 saying you know I know you Mara, that's really a way of mythologically representing the development of insight of our own mind, the, the Buddha mind, the, the awake aspect of our own mind, our own heart saying, oh I know this is a feeling of disliking. This is the mind believing in, a, in an opinion. And then, that, oh, I know what this is. I know you, Mara. It's like, but I'm right. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't be this way. Uh, and then just that sense of, oh, I know what this is. This is a very convincing opinion. Then that's the, I know you, Mara. Uh, as sort of displayed in the stories of the, of the Buddha or the Buddha's disciples, like the, the Bhikkhuni Vajira. And Mara came to try and throw her off, off track and uh, persuade her to leave the monastic life. Or with uh, uh, Moggallana, you know, Mara sort of getting into his stomach and giving him indigestion. <laughs> that, uh, that, that awakening of understanding or wisdom, that sense of knowing, oh, I know what this is. The, the mind is not deluded. So it's a... Um, I, I would say that that... Uh, those encounters with Mara are very much representing how even within the mind of an, of an enlightened being those impulses towards greed or aversion or, or delusion or doubt they can arise but they have no place to land 
like uh, Lumpur Dun, one of the disciples of Ajahn Man, when somebody asked him when he was when he was very old and he's had a reputation of being an arahant, they say, "Yeah, Lumpur, you know, do you do you ever experience anger?" And he said, "Oh yes, yes, it it, uh, uh, it arrives, but I don't receive it. Uh, me, they're my owl. It's like like a parcel is delivered and say, no." Wrong address. <laughs> Return to sender. You know, it's like it arrives, but there's no place for it, it to land. There's no traction there. And Lumpur would say similar things. That, is that uh, when a, a, a palm reader saw his hand once and said, "Wow, Lumpur, you have a lot of anger," he said, "Yes, but I don't use it." <laughs> so, any other questions, please? Uh, Yes, if you could use the microphone, that would be helpful. Thank you very much for that interesting talk, Ajahn. Uh, I just want to just clarify thing. You, on the same theme, you mentioned that uh, even the enlightened ones get uh, desires and uh, doubts. You mentioned about that. My understanding is, I may be wrong, uh, when before the enlightenment of Buddha, Mara sent his three daughters, Tanna, Raga, Rati, those three, to distract Buddha's thought. So my understanding is, when you are enlightened, you have conquered the five hindrances, Panchanivarna, Kamachanda, and the last one is Vichikicca, the doubt. So how can these things occur in the enlightened mind again well that that's a, it's a, a common point of discussion that some people feel that someone who's enlightened a being who's enlightened those kind of, of thoughts or feelings can't arise but uh, and it might seem heretical but uh, I, f I feel that this mythology of Mara and then Mara coming along to with these ideas, you know, you could turn this whole mountain range into solid gold, or Mara appearing as a as a massive dragon when the Buddha was doing walking meditation, and Mara appeared as this huge kind of naga snake with giant spinning eyes and and fangs to and uh, trying to arouse fear. Uh, so that uh, I, I would say that what that and that, but how immediately every single time the response is, "I know you, Mara." So that to me, that's a, a way of representing that, yeah, these experiences arise even in the, the 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 mind of an enlightened being, but there's no place for them to land. There's 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 nothing there for them to get any traction on, and so uh, I know that um, particularly in the commentarial literature, you know, they they would say, oh no, no, no a Buddha could never have a late, a thought of selfishness or or doubt or. Uh, an arahant can't experience uh, fear or desire or aversion, uh, but I feel that the the mythology of of Mara and the encounters of Mara with with the various arahants or people sort of on the path, it's representing in a mythological form that can, in terms of the being uh, a being here and a being there, those psychological states. And it might be heretical to say that, but <laughs> to me it makes perfect sense. And then you have the comments of people like Ajahn Chah or Lumpur Chah, Lumpur Dun, who quite comfortably ref, you know, talk about that and say, oh yes, <laughs> there's, 
there's a, uh, the anger can be there, but it doesn't have, there's no substance to it. There's nothing for it to land on. It, it's, it's a, uh, the mind knows it immediately and it's impossible for it to, to be acted upon. So uh, that, that kind of point of view, I know it goes again, also in Northern Buddhism, that the idea that the, uh, the, the Buddha or any enlightened being could possibly have any kind of unskillful thought or emotion ever arising, it's like, no, 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 it couldn't possibly, it can't arise. Uh, to me, I, I, uh, I feel if you go back to the original suttas, and, and particularly if you look at this mythology of, of the encounters with Mara, it's like, yeah, I think it's exactly it's saying that, yeah, because you've got a body, you've got a mind, you've got the, um, the, the kind of karmic history uh, of, uh, of a life, those things might arise because of, of past causes, but there's no place for them to land. There's, there's no, there's no th- being there to re- receive it, or, or no kind of solidity is given to that. So the mind immediately knows, I, I know you, Mara. And that's how the, the Buddha coolly and easily responds every single time. Yeah, I know, I know you, Mara. It's not intimidated, not, it's not defensive, it's not thrown off balance, it's just the, those things arise, like the, the Mara coming to say, what are you doing lying down to have a rest in the middle of the day, you lazy monk? You know, you're supposed to be an enlightened master, what kind of an example are you? And, and uh, I can easily, uh, and again, this might be projection or, or it might be considered heretical, but I, I feel, yeah, that's, that thought could arise. Because if, if uh, when you, so before your enlightenment or while you're in spiritual training, you might say, I'm not going to lie down in the middle of the day. That's what lazy monks do. You know, I'm going to always be awake. I shouldn't do that. That's, that's, that's a weakness. That's a laziness. And so then if you've thought that thought a hundred times or five hundred times, <laughs> then even after enlightenment, there's a bit of momentum behind that. Okay, um, it's the hot season. The whole system is really drained. Uh, it's, it feels intuitively like taking a nap would be a sensible thing to refresh the system. That uh, then, oh, you know, then that, that thought arising, oh, lying down in the middle of the day, that's what lazy monks do. And that... Just say, say, well, no, <laughs> that's that's not the whole story. That's uh, this is totally blameless and inappropriate. So uh, that uh, I feel is a way of representing in the scriptures, either uh, you know it, whether it sort of actually happened with another being coming along and sort of uh, embodying the, or expressing those words, uh, or whether it's just a thought arising in the mind. I think it's you know same same really. <laughs> It's the uh, it's effectively the same thing, and that that immediate and clear, cool response of you know I know I know you, Mara. I know what this is. All Lumpur Chow is saying yes, but I don't use it <laughs> with with respect to anger. Uh, that the, that uh, there's a karmic tendency, but there's there's no thing there to sub- make it substantial. So the. Uh, I would say that probably goes against some of the commentarial take on things, but also that some of the commentaries are really, they don't, I, I feel they don't represent the actuality of the teaching or what, how things really are in a very accurate way. They can be, so that sometimes you get, uh, arahants represented as like being un- unable to make choices or look after themselves at all. Like they say, you know, if, an arahant, if, some, if a lay person becomes an arahant, they have to ordain within seven days or they'll starve to death. Like, you don't become an idiot. 
with enlightenment. <laughs> it's not like you can't, you can't look after your own body, or you you don't sort of do uh, you know, the uh, that uh, you, you don't become a complete zombie. Like I can't, yeah. You know, and and it, but sometimes it comes across that way. I mean, really, I'm, I'm joking, but not joking. So some of these texts that I've read, you think. It's like a, an arahant is like a completely sort of unplugged human being. Like you have to be sort of moved around and looked after because you can't, you can't choose or act or decide. Like there's no sort of will is is impossible. It's like that's not right. <laughs> Something it just doesn't it doesn't resonate as being true. But the, uh, but the uh, so I feel that 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 kind of uh, imagery you have of of. Um, Mara coming along and then testing the Buddha right up to the end of the, the Buddha's years, uh, as uh, just before the Parinibbana, as when uh, when the Buddha had decided, okay, now it's time to relinquish the the life force and to, to you know, this and this life is coming to an end. And uh, yeah, Mara said, "Oh yes, absolutely, uh, right. You can just let let the whole thing go right now." And the Buddha said, "I know you, Mara." <laughs> That uh, yes, my life is coming to an end, but it won't end completely until I've uh, taken leave of the community and you know, visited the various different branches and said, uh, given teachings to the in various different corners. That's when my life, you know, this life will come to an end and the parinibbana will be realized. So Mara kind of, you know, and when I didn't give up, but uh, the uh, but it also can represent the Buddha thinking, oh well, okay, yes, it's time to relinquish the life force, but. Uh, it would be appropriate to go and see all the different groups and uh, and uh, let the different communities take leave, and then then it'll be time to go. <laughs> yes. Hi, Ajahn. It's Jonathan. Good to see you in person. Um, so my. Uh, sort of couple of questions. So, uh, if Mara is a mythical being or some sort of force, what is his or her in, or its intention? So, what was Mara's intention and what Mara was saying to uh, Buddha about politics, desire, etc.? Well, um, it's a good question. <laughs> so, Mara is uh, uh, intent, well, the sense of rulership over the sense world and that feeling that the, the all living beings are my subjects and like what's the intention of any political leader usually to stay in power <laughs> to exercise power mm. and to keep as many beings uh, uh, in, within their power as possible to exercise as much control and to have as much wealth and capacity as possible and that's it's not necessarily thought through in terms of, well, why is this a good thing? Uh -huh. <laughs> why does it have to be me? Usually, um, it's uh, for most, I would say, many political leaders, or, or in, whether it's a monarchy or a, a democracy or a dictatorship or whatever, that uh, people in those kind of roles, they like to exercise power. They're used to being in power. They used to have that sense of, of control. So in some ways, Mara is the embodiment of ego, and that the uh, and that sense of of uh, I want control. I'm in charge here. This is my life. I do what I want. I I am in command here. 
Uh, and that, uh, so it's a kind of embodiment of egotism. <laughs> like the I, uh, as a sort of, and, and it's, it's a, in a way that, that embodiment of, of self-centered attitudes and that the name means death. So that, the, that ego, uh, the, the, the more that there's an attachment to I and me and mine, the more that you are creating the causes for death and the fear of death, mm. and that, uh, or fear of ending and losing power. Mm. So that, uh, that um, uh, I would say it's, uh, but part of, of that egotism or self-centered thinking is delusional. It's like that I am the special one, I am in charge here, you know, I'm the one. Um, and that, that in a, to a degree, I can't allow that wisdom that says, that can't be the whole story. <laughs> that, yeah, it might feel like that, you know, the, the, there's a certain amount of power and, and capacity, but, but uh, this, you're not really the ruler of, of anything or anyone. And there's a basic delusion, but it's but because of uh, it's just like any when the mind is is lost in an egotistical uh, state. And it, uh, I'm not making judgments about anyone, but whenever any of us are sort of like, but I want that. One of the, but I think it's this is mine. You can't do that to me. What about me? <laughs> in that moment of like, what about me? Now that's mine. That seems like an absolute reality. But it's a reactive uh, and somewhat deluded state. If there's a perspective that, well, conventionally speaking, this is mine, but it isn't really, because no, no thing can possibly be owned, then that, you can't really think, but that's mine, <laughs> in the same way. So um, uh, that the Mara uh, archetype, I would say, is, is intrinsically delusional. And so you have this sort of counterpoint between Mara and the Buddha as a sort of the desire mind or the, the, the self-centered mind and the wisdom mind, that they are in a kind of counterpoint with each other. And so when we are practicing meditation, then that dialogue <laughs> is a lot of what we're experiencing. It's like, ow, my leg is hurting. If only I didn't have this pain in my leg, then I could really concentrate. <laughs> right? And that then... That's sort of Mara speaking. If only I, I got rid of this and I and I didn't and I didn't have to deal with this, everything would be great. And then the the Buddha is the, the mind that says, "This is aversion to pain. This is restlessness. This is impatience. Yeah, this is the feeling of pain. Is it is it bearable? My mind is saying, if only this wasn't here, then the world would be perfect. But what's really wrong with the world right now? This is a feeling of discomfort." But it's just that. It's, it's only just started, so no permanent damage is likely within the next 30 seconds. So uh, uh, just know this as a, a, as a feeling. Know it as it is. So that dialogue between the Buddha and Mara in a, is a mythological form. It's, mm. it's, it's demonstrating those, uh, the, react, the, the dialogue between the reactive habits of liking, disliking, fearing, hoping, resenting, longing, uh, opinionating, <laughs> and the wisdom mind that says, oh, this is just longing, this is just regretting, this is just opinionating. Oh, 
And that I know you, Mara, is that, that the arising of insight. And uh, so it's played out in a mythological form in these dialogues. And uh, as sort of these dialogues between the, the, the Buddha as an entity and Mara as an entity or the, 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 uh, the Buddha's disciples. But um, that uh, it's, uh, that's the, the purpose of insight meditation is of strengthening the Buddha's voice, <laughs> the, the voice of wisdom. But often you get in the scriptures descriptions of how Mara has entered into some being and they've got lost in some kind of conceited view or some sort of inflated view or they've taken hold of an opinion or a position or they believe in that they are somebody special or that you know, this is something really good and true. And that, that then when the Buddha comes along or the enlightened uh, disciple of the Buddha comes along, they recognize, oh, I know what's going on here. <laughs> That's, Mara's come into the mind of this person and they, they're swept up by that, uh, that delusion that uh, it, they are overcome by that delusional state. So it's uh, like any kind of mythology, like you know, Greek mythology or Norse mythology, that the, like the, the, their roles and why, in, say, in Greek theater, you had a lot of these sort of great stories, histories, and tragedies. It's played out, and and we we tell those stories over and over again because they are, and that's why people like Freud and Jung and and so forth spent so much time sorry. focusing on mythology. Freud and sorry, Jung, Jung, Carl Jung. Jung, yes, sorry, yeah. got it. Carl Jung and that uh, they focused a lot on mythology because these are representing aspects of the the human mind. And that, uh, you know, that they, um, so that they're represented in, in sort of Greek or Roman mythology or Egyptian or you know, Norse mythology in these mythological forms as, as uh, Freya and Odin or as uh, Ares and Aphrodite and, and Artemis and so on. That, uh, yeah, they, they're, they're deified, they're made into entities, but they're, in a way, they're, the, the dynamic between that happens between them, like uh, like Ares and Aphrodite, the god of war and the goddess of love, they were partners. So that, uh, that, there's a symbol right there, <laughs> and uh, so that they it's a way of representing these psychological qualities, so that people like Freud and Jung and and you know, many other sort of modern day sort of psychi- psychoanalysts or psychiatrists and therapists and so on use uh, mythology <coughs> or like um, uh, James Joyce's book Ulysses, Ulysses you know it's about an everyday you know uh, the, the very ordinary everyday life of a of a, um, a, 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 a advertising salesman in, in Dublin in in the early 20th century a day in the life of, of Leopold Bloom See, sort of the, the, the journey of Ulysses around the, the Mediterranean trying to get home after the Trojan War. So there's ways that these, these sort of deified forms are representing psychological processes and how these stories get told or the plays get repeated to, to keep demonstrating this is how the mind works. This is what happens when desire is frustrated or when, when we act upon anger or, or when jealousy is the dominant force this is this is what comes about so it's displayed in the lives and stories or the myths of, of the 
of these divine or sort of semi-divine beings, but it's talking about what jealousy feels like with you, what you know, acting on anger feels like with, with you, or what you know, with the uh, uh, how love and uh, love and hate kind of uh, are mysteriously close to each other uh, that uh, within us, and so that. Uh, I feel this you know, the dialoguing between the Buddha and Mara is in a very similar way, like you have in the Greek myths or the Egyptian or Roman or Norse myths and fairy tales of Europe, that they're they're spelling out these psychological processes that we're all a part of, and that's why we keep telling these stories. You know, that's why the the myths stay alive, and these uh, these say these archetypes are still meaningful because it's like, oh yes, that's how it is. <laughs> So, so Ajahn, if Samara is the voice and the layperson that would suggest someone commits crimes, violence, um, maybe is Mara behind this psychological states, like perhaps like depression, and um, is Mara the voice that's almost like suicidal voices as well? Is that the same concept, or are these different things, or is that just different times today? I would say it's all related. I would say those are those particular. Those particular um, activities are sort of the 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 armies of Mara, like the you know that, the, those ten the, the ten squadrons. Yeah, yeah. They're all kind of Mara's the commander in chief, if you like. Yeah, yeah. That the 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 I principle, the kind of the the, the uh, that's the the kind of core uh, energy of it. And then it works its way out in in sloth or depression or agitation or aggression or fear or cowardice or or pride or that whole list that appeared in that in that sutta. And finally, how would we teach our children about Maharaj? Would have any tips on parenting, teaching children how to be deal with their Mara and is it Hiriotapa, how to refrain from doing things? Is it, is there any literature Depends there? on the parent and depends on the child. <laughs> I think just the, that, um, the, but the basic format of not being, uh, not contending against what is bad and wrong, or seen as bad and wrong or unwholesome, not making that the, the enemy or a problem, but uh, that whole, what you have in this dynamic uh, displayed over and over and over again is that the Buddha's not afraid of Mara, he's not intimidated by Mara, he's not limited by what Mara does, but rather as soon as there's the encounter, there's the I know you Mara, and that's how uh, Mara's so disempowered. There's, there's one really interesting little passage where it's called the, the stanzas, stanzas of Disappointment, where... <laughs> And it's describing uh, how uh, during the uh, after the, the Buddha left the household life, then Mara was kind of trying to give him a bad time uh, throughout his life as a as a wandering yogi, and then up to the enlightenment. And then it says, uh, "This is from the um, Sangyutta Nikaya." Then Mara uttered these uh, these stanzas of disappointment in the Blessed One's presence. So uh, this is after the Buddha's enlightenment. It's Mara saying. I tried really hard to to trick you and to fool you, but it's just damn, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't manage it. So these are called the stanzas of disappointment. 
Step by step, for seven years, I've followed the Blessed One, the fully enlightened one, possessed of mindfulness, gave me no chance. A crow there was that walked around a stone that seemed to be a lump of fat. Shall I find something soft in this? And is there something tasty here? He, finding nothing tasty there, made off. And we, from Gotama, depart in disappointment too, like the crow that tried the stone. And full of sorrow, he let his vina, his lute, slip from under his arm, and then the unhappy demon vanished. Now when Mara, the evil one, had spoken these stanzas of disappointment in the Blessed One's presence, he left that place and sat down cross-legged on the ground, not far from the Blessed One, silent, dismayed, his shoulders drooping and poking the ground with a stick. (laughs) (laughs) Damn! Tried so hard. So it's a, it's a um, very, uh, very sort of graphic description of Mara. Silent, dismayed, shoulders drooping, head down, glum and with nothing to say, scraping the ground with a stick. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so you feel quite sort of like feeling sorry for, uh, for Satan in the uh, Paradise Lost, but uh, like Mara, oh, he tried so hard. <laughs> Didn't get a... Like the, the, the crow trying to find something tasty in a rock. Like No matter how much you poke it or which, which angle you approach it from, it's a rock on every side. There may be time for that, yeah. one more question. If there's any other questions. Yes. One last one. Yeah. No, thank you very much for the enlightening talk. Um, I'm wondering if we can consider... Uh, a love and sense of duty as Mara as well and selfishness coming against it. The reason why I say it is that there's only a limited amount of hours in the day and I know I have a limited amount of years in my life but um, lots of things in a lay life come to me, uh, you know, with my, I spent time with my relatives, my friends, my vihara, my job, um, and that—that's taking me away from from the the path um, that the Buddha might have shown. So, do I do I need to use my selfishness to quell that Mara of love and duty? That was in some representations of the the. The, the, the enlightenment some of them just have the two armies of Mar or the, the, the forces of threat and danger have the, the demonic army and then the daughters of Mara as a force of attraction in, in some of the stories the third one is responsibility and uh, the, the image of his father King Sudodna with tears running down his face appeared in front of the, the, the Bodhisattva and, uh, and King Sudodana sort of begging him to come back and take over the kingdom, saying, oh, please, son, you know, you're such, a, you're such a bright light. Everyone respects you. Everyone loves you. You know, your half-brother Nanda, you know, he's, he's a good lad, but, you know, he's, he's not up to, up to you. And, you know, yeah, I respect the fact you want to do this spiritual thing, but, you know, the kingdom is falling apart. And, you know, just uh, no pressure, you know, 
not trying to emotionally blackmail you, but you know, it is all falling apart without you being there. So, um, you know, if you did decide to come back and take over, that would be really, really appreciated. And yeah, no pressure, I'm not trying to force you. And then the Buddha responds, I know you, Mara. Yeah. That, uh, and so that it's a, uh, uh, in a, that's the third one, the third test is in, may, in a way more challenging than the first two. Fear and desire. Responsibility is more subtle. And that, uh, that sense of, yes, there's the family, yes, there's the kingdom, but yes, there is the potential of Buddhahood. And that the uh, the the amount of benefit that will come to the world by this one being realizing full and complete enlightenment far outweighs the benefit that can be uh, gathered from going back to Kapilavatu and taking over the Sakya kingdom, being a good a good ruler in the in the in the uh, for the for the Sakyan people in the in that Himalayan kingdom, and so. That uh, that is a judgment we all have to make. I mean, you, I'm not going to make your decisions for you, <laughs> but we have to decide those things for ourselves. But it, 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 I, say, I would say that's a a really helpful part of the story. That you know, his father's tear-stained face coming before him and saying, "Yeah, please, son. Yeah, it's all falling apart. You know, you really could help." You say. Yes, I, I understand that you feel that way, and yes, that is a priority for you. But yes, that's not the whole story. And really, so reaching into one's deepest intuition, and uh, say that sense of the Buddha recognizing, I'm not doing this in order to disappoint you. I'm not. Uh, I'm not relishing the fact that the kingdom might be diminished because I'm not taking over as a ruler. But. Uh, the, the the reason I'm doing this is is not defined in those terms. The reason I'm doing this is because this is the the way to fulfill the potential that there is as this living being, and uh, to realize Buddhahood is of immeasurably greater benefit to immeasurably greater number of beings, and being a skillful ruler for this one little kingdom in the Himalayan foothills. So that's a, that's a, a challenge that uh, we we all face. When I was just very, very newly in the monastery in Thailand. I'd only been there for three or four weeks. And I remember I was sweeping up the leaves on the pathway in front of my kuti. And, and I was filled with, with faith, like this is exactly what I left England to, to find. This is absolutely ideal. This is, this is really clear. This is what I want to do. And uh, yeah, when I, I left England, I just finished a university degree. My parents knew I was eccentric. <laughs> it's a bit of a. They, they gave me a big paddock to roam in to, as a teenager. They cut, they cut me a lot of slack. They knew I was eccentric and a bit of a wild character, but they did not expect religion, <laughs> let alone Buddhism or Buddhist monastic life. It was more. They they um, uh, they would uh, expect me to get arrested or. You know, bring back a bring back a a, a wife and a few children from or, uh, different parts of the world, um, but uh, yeah, they weren't expecting that. And so I was sweeping the, the path in front of my cootie and thinking, yeah, my parents, uh, how am I going to tell them? 
you know, there there's a really normal middle class English country people like they with really normal you know, English middle class values. There's no there's no way they, they they're ever gonna be able to deal with this. And uh so then and this thought crossed my mind that maybe I should just give this all up, go back and get a job in, in London and marry a nice girl and have curly-haired children with, have good table manners and a nice, speak proper English and run around the garden and have roses around the door. And uh, it was just, that was a kind of train of thought just because that would, uh, that they, could, they could be happy about that, <laughs> but having me come, uh, come back as a, a shaven-headed Buddhist monk in a, in a brown robe was... Not something they would they would be able to deal with, and it was really hit me just sort of in a in a flash right there that that would be an unkindness to myself, and it would be an unkindness to them, and also anybody that I married or that I was a parent of, when I didn't really want to be there, I was just sort of doing it out of obligation, and it was just it was it was strange because it was all like sort of there in a single picture, like how just fulfilling somebody else's expectations, my heart's not in it. What would that be like for? For them, and also that you know, even if you do have uh, well-behaved, curly-haired little children, then they go, they, they they go and do things that upset people. They they, <laughs> they become drug addicts, or they they uh, uh, they get expelled from school from for misbehaving, or they uh, they uh, it, it, there's always there's always something that can go wrong, or they never quite get high enough marks, or. <laughs> Or that uh, they uh, they take off with someone who's the uh, wrong age or wrong gender or wrong something, you know, that, uh, wrong color that uh, you know that uh, is somehow throws everything off. And it was just, it was you know, like in, just in a, a finger snap. It was really clear that no matter how hard you try to meet other people's expectations, you can't possibly do that because their expectations are always going to be changing and getting more and more. And it would be an unkindness for for my for them, and also an unkindness for myself. And so um, it just hit me like, no, just the, do uh, do what you feel is the right thing to do, and sooner or later, they'll if you're really true to yourself, then they'll they'll come to understand it. It might take a long time, but if you're really true to yourself and you and you're sincere with that, then. That will speak for itself in time. It took about 15 years after I ended up coming back from Thailand. It was about 15 years before they realized, okay. <laughs> Both my sisters were about 40 and not married. Both career women. I was a Buddhist monk. There were no grandchildren in sight. Everyone had gone off in weird directions. So, uh, okay. None of our ideas have taken shape as we expected. So... Okay, just drop all expectations and just okay. They're they're happy what they're doing. She's a diplomat. She's a nurse. He's a monk. Okay. <laughs> no grandchildren. No marriages in sight. Here we are. And then so the, the, it's sort of. But it took about fifteen years of just gentle pressure, <laughs> expectation. Thank you, Bhante. Thank you, Bhante. So we'll leave it there for today. Thank you for your attention, your good questions. And I think next week, uh, Ajahn Vimalo will be uh, the one offering the Sunday talk. Um, 
And so uh, please do come along for his uh, insight, wisdom, sharing. And uh, uh, we're about halfway through the Rains Retreat now, so I think it's about another five or six of these Sunday talks. The the last one will be in uh, uh, early October. So go well.